This is The Art Life. Hello, I'm Grace Gordon, actress and activist, and I am so happy to be here today with Lori Kim, my cherished friend and the author of Snape, The Definitive Analysis. I am happy to have Lori on the show today to talk about something she is so good at that I continue to be intimidated by. We're here today to talk about the art of editing. Hi, Lori. Hi, Grace. Nice to hear your voice. I miss you already, even though I just saw you. We just got to see each other in Philadelphia for a few days, and it was so special. And um, I was thinking back, too, about when, when I was writing a little preparation for this episode about how we met, and you were one of the first people I met in Philadelphia when I was 12 years old and we moved to Philly, I was so nervous about friends and, and leaving my friends. And uh, yeah. the one of the first things I did was join, I think the first thing I did actually, before we even moved, was I joined Potterdelphia, the Harry Potter meetup group in Philly. And that's where I met you. And I was just always so astounded by your insight about the books and these deep conversations we would have. And over the years... I've seen you speak at conferences. I've read your book and so much of your writing. We've been on podcasts together. And uh, I'm just really excited that we get to talk about editing today. Yeah. As I recall, at the time, I thought you were maybe 22 and that you had graduated from college and that you were working. That's uh, that's usually the impression I gave at that age. Yeah. And the other thing I recall from the first time you visited was that unlike everybody else there... You disagreed with me, you gave evidence, and I immediately changed my mind. Ah! Wow, that is, um, that is, I'm, I'm very moved to hear that. <laughs> I, uh, I, I can't say that I knew that, to be honest. I don't know that I remember the last part of that. I do have a very distinct memory of talking about, uh, like, Freud with you hmm. and, um, and like the the golden the golden trio being split oh. up into like id ego super ego uh-huh. and it was uh, it's just one of the, one of my one of my favorite first memories of our friendship oh. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get into talking about editing and all the the writing projects that we've been involved in together i wanted to ask you as we always do at the beginning of the show how is your art life my art life is available and waiting. I am busy with moving house and a lot of other logistical things. So I don't, I'm not getting a lot of time to myself to do the writing that I want. But unlike other times in my life, I know that when I'm ready and I have time and I sit down to do it, it'll be just there waiting for me. Moving is the worst thing in the world. (laughs) But having just seen your beautiful home, I'm so excited for you. And I'm so excited about the fact that you intentionally found a space where you could have more room for art making. Yeah. So Grace, how's your art life? Oh, goodness. I wasn't prepared to answer that because uh, usually when I interview people, they don't ask. (laughs) But I I Um, really want to know. My God. uh, How is my art life? Let's see. I have to take a second to think because I wasn't prepared to answer. My art life is in a flow state or keeping things in a flow state. Mm -hmm. More specifically, I uh, just had a clothing swap that Mm -hmm. was so much fun and the best Mm -hmm. one I've ever had. And 
I, you know, traded a bunch of clothes with friends who are also all like performers or models. Mm -hmm. And so everyone had such cool, unique things that they Mm -hmm. brought. And then I'm donating a bunch of the leftover stuff and sending certain things to friends that like were left over and made me think of them. I like Mm -hmm. texted a picture of something to a friend in New York and said, oh, this reminds me of you. Do you want this? Like, (laughs) so it's, I I love, um, just, it frees me up. It frees up my energy when I actually yeah. move objects around like that. Mm-hmm. When I'm like, don't just leave things sitting in my closet for years that I never wear. So it's it's getting me creatively more awakened and more in flow as mm-hmm. well to just move so many pieces of clothing around and give them to people who will actually wear them. Mm-hmm. And then they have new life. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get down to it, Lori. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, we mentioned a few minutes ago that we saw each other recently. I, I came home to Philly for the first time in like three years. And we were talking about doing an Art Life episode together. And somewhere in that conversation, you told me about how beta reading fan fiction is done in a different and potentially more beneficial way mm-hmm. than traditional editing feedback for novels. Mm-hmm. So to start the conversation for people listening who don't know, what is beta reading? Mm-hmm. Beta reading, it's part of the fanfic economy. It's, it's editing, but it's editing from the point of view of someone who's part of your target audience, not as somebody who's a professional, not someone who's going to give you advice or help you sell your book, but just, you know, the part of the community that you're writing for as a member, when you read what someone has written, does it work? How do you receive it as part of that community? Is the author's intention coming through? And then you give your answers and your feedback based on that. And how is the the process of beta reading fan fiction different than like traditional editing? The fact that you're not trying to sell something, that you're not trying to write to market, it removes a dimension that can be really stressful because part of when you're editing for market is you're trying to predict what people will spend their money on. But if you're beta reading as a member of a community, then fanfic, the community where authors write and release chapters regularly and then readers respond instantaneously, there's so much conversation happening you always get a lot of information about what people are looking for, what strikes them as resonant or true. So it's a lot more supportive in that sense, because also with traditional publishing, you write the book and then you edit it. And, you know, two years later, after you've written the last word, it gets published. And then maybe somebody reads it and writes you a two note review that says, Oh, I love this. It made me cry. Right. Okay. What? parts (laughs) that's nice that's great that's so much better than you know people saying nothing but with fanfic you get like this is the exact word you used and this is where I thought it was going and this is where you took it and you can it's very minute it's like line by line that was something I was thinking about when you brought it up was how people release in you know chapter by chapter Mm mm-hmm 
And I actually, I don't really know anything about the editing process of a novel. So, or, or a traditional, you know, book to Mm -hmm. be published. Is it usually sending like a first draft and then you receive edits on the whole thing? Because I was thinking about how fan fiction is just more, um, as you write, you are getting feedback continuously for each part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's the fan fiction model is like serial fiction that you read about from the 19th century where you mm-hmm. know there would be like a new installment every week or every month and people can change it in response to current events or feedback or and and that can be also not a great thing but uh, it's just a different dynamic from a novel that arrives between covers completely finished in one big thunk <laughs> um so for novel editing you know the traditionally published sort as the writer, you're going to be getting feedback probably from quite a few different people in addition to your actual editor or publisher. So you, you know, you might very well be workshopping it with your friends Mm -hmm. um, and doing bit by bit. But when it comes to dealing with your publisher, there's like a couple rounds of here's the finished draft and then you get back comments. And then I don't know anyone for whom getting back the comments is an easy feeling. (laughs) It's stressful. It's stressful. I have one friend who is a screenwriter and his way of dealing with things is he, when he gets uh, notes back from the studio executives, he just tells them they're right. And then he doesn't change anything in the script. (laughs) And that's what he has. That's been his system for the past like decade because their ideas are often very bad. Like, really really bad and so he just tells them like yes good job you're right studio executive and then does not change his work and uh so far it's um it's actually worked for him Uh instead of arguing with them but you know he's in a different position and screenwriting and you know making tv is also a different a different process (laughs) oh life is hard life is hard Yeah, I wasn't even thinking, I'm used to the, the you know, on the Hollywood side of things, I'm mm-hmm. used to considerations in in screen, uh, in, when, when reading a script about, you know, will this sell? Is there a market for this? Even things like product placement, those are all, unfortunately, things mm-hmm. that are major yeah. factors in something getting made. But yeah. I really don't know the traditional publishing side of it. I didn't, I, I hadn't considered how how much like selling the book and marketing the book was a consideration when you're receiving feedback from an editor yeah I mean there are trends like you know in previous decades there was like a vampire trend right you know dystopia trends or Mm -hmm. whatever so yeah it it can very easily be that you have a great novel that's not in fashion right now and they know that it can't sell wow I was interested when you when you talked about like workshopping a novel with friends, mm-hmm. like sharing your 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 writing as you go along. I've been very amused the past few years here in LA by the surprise my mm-hmm. screenwriter friends express when they send me their screenplays and I read them yeah. and I send feedback. Mm-hmm. And like they're like multiple <laughs> times I've had friends, I mean some of the most talented writers I know are shocked uh-huh. that when they send me their script, yeah. I will read it. And mm-hmm. and I, I mean, I guess 
I, I guess I, I, I don't know. I'm wondering your thoughts on that. Is that normal? Like, do you have this experience too? Are most writers just expecting their friends to not read their work? I don't know why it's so surprising. I think it depends on, well, partly depends on how much responsibility you're willing to take for the process and gift of reflecting a person back to themselves. Mm. That is a hard thing to do if you're not ready to be big enough to do that because people being what we are, everyone gets a little bit crazy when we hear feedback about how we come across to the world. Mm -hmm. You know, like, okay, so you've put your true self into this screenplay, no matter how cynical or polished or expert you are, there's some of your true vulnerable self in there. And then you wait to hear how much your self-image is in accord with what people got from it, how much you can trust that. And if you think, okay, that's what artists do, that's what friends do, is we open space and hold space open for each other so that we carefully pay attention to each other and then reflect each other back. It's a lot of work and it's Mm -hmm. loving. It's a hard thing to do if if there isn't trust between the two people, it can also be hard when you're the artist receiving feedback that even if it's right, you're not ready to hear it. Yes, that's true. Oh, there's, and there's so many ways in which we humans are intimidated by each other. So especially if it's somebody who's a very experienced screenwriter, I can really imagine a lot of people thinking, well, I don't have anything to say to them. My feedback isn't that important. Mm. or it looks good to me. I don't even know what I'm looking for. But it's all of these things are so personal and vulnerable and can verge easily into the neurotic. It's really hard to explain to somebody, first of all, to find out what did the person want from you when they passed you their screenplay. Good point. (laughs) You know, what were they hoping for? What is it that they want, but they don't know they want it because they've never gotten it? Mm. What if your take on it is so vivid and so far from their take on it that it would have been better to not even start? (laughs) It's really people's very raw selves meeting and possibly colliding or making trouble for each other or or for yourself. And I mean, screenplays by definition, right, have to be about something that's harrowing emotionally. Mm. So you're already, that's already one of the dangers going in, which is what makes it thrilling and vital. Mm -hmm. But you already have to be super careful. So if it's a medium that you're comfortable with and that level of intensity is something that you understand and you know to expect, then that's a gift already that not everyone has. Hmm. But yeah, if you take just like someone who doesn't live in that world, who, you know, thinks of writing as something that is about the everyday and not about large things that are so emotional that you can make a whole movie out of them. Yeah, it's it's a different scale. And then also people have a hard time knowing if they can express things properly, what they're feeling in a way that can translate and land in a helpful manner to the original artist. Mm -hmm. That's so many steps all at once, and all of them are pretty volatile. 
Mm. So this is one of those like talking and chewing gum and riding a bike things that like (laughs) if you can do it, then you have mastered a whole bunch of skills at once. Which, you know, when after you know how to do it might seem okay, but learning each of them one at a time is hard. And you also, some of these things, the only way to learn is by making mistakes that hurt. Yeah. Which is, oh, well, that's how it is. (laughs) Yeah, on both sides. Uh, You know, asking the wrong person to view an early draft or on the friend side, you know, not understanding what someone needed when they sent Mm -hmm. you their work. And therefore, mm-hmm. sending back the wrong kind of feedback. And you mm-hmm. bring up a really good point. I'm, I mean, now I'm wondering: Do you usually ask people, like, what are you looking for in feedback from that's, me? That's a whole process. That's half of it. There's a lot of different kinds of editing. Definitely, if the person just wants, could you just read it and tell me I'm fine? Right. That is completely legitimate and there are different ways that you can do that like do you mean you're fine like your parents are are not going to come kill you (laughs) do you mean you're fine like given the requirements this is good enough what do you mean getting the writer to talk about it is a big part of it and that's not just to find out what they want from me but just to get them to talk about it that's a large part of what people want when they come to an editor for feedback anyway is, you know, okay, well, I put all of my effort into making this thing. So of course I could not be thinking about it at the same time. So now that I've gotten to a stopping place, can you help me think about it? So, you know, sometimes I've thought, well, maybe it's a piece of writing that's a thousand words long that's due in a week or it's due tomorrow. Right. Maybe it's getting paid. Maybe it's not getting paid. Maybe it's completely nothing, but it actually is going to impress some people if you do it right. Or on the other hand, I've also edited people's college, grad school, and med school application essays. Mm -hmm. Like there was one time when I asked somebody how much do you want to hear from me? Because I knew that if I said everything I was thinking, like every single thing that I thought they should go back and change, it was a lot. Yeah. And this person just looked at me and said, I want to get in. Yep. And I said, okay. Good for them. Yeah. And (laughs) I was, I was really rough on them, but that's what they wanted. So finding out what they want, that conversation is so valuable in itself. And that's a big part of it. And then um, my goal after that is that I want to get everything closer together, what the person wants, what the writing assignment requires, and if it seems to me as the reader that the effect they're having is the one that they hoped for. Like, does it sound like them? Yeah, basically what I want is, let's see if we can make this sound like you. Mm. what they're looking for, what they're trying to write for, how much work they want to put in, how much time they have, that all goes into creating the end goal, the image of the end goal right? that I have in mind, you know, so I can say, okay, this is done. This is you. This is, even if I help them with every single word, 
it should be that at the end, if somebody reads it and then asks them any question about it, the person should be able to answer completely, like, obviously, this was written by them. Mm, I love that. And you mean this about their about all writing, not just like applications with college essays? If you're writing ad copy, right? <laughs> you know, then then you know your originality or your selfhood or your authentic voice doesn't matter as much, but that there's a whole different set of requirements. Oh, I spent some years <laughs> I spent some years working as an editor for English translation captions of Korean TV shows and movies. Amazing. I didn't even know that. Wow. (laughs) Including like K-pop variety shows. Now, I wasn't actually seeing the variety shows. I was getting the already translated English captions, and I was editing them to be native English and also to fit into the character and screen limits. Wow, what an interest. So you weren't watching the actual video. That's interesting. And, you know, the the challenges here partly were, you know, how much information can you fit? How can you rephrase things? So they might not be literally a translation, but they get the right mood across in the shortest amount of time. I got really good at knowing how many letters were on a line. And, you know, there are things that you can translate literally that are correct, but they don't have the mood at all. So you have to be really confident. Yeah. And in that sense, you do still want the authentic voice to come through. Hmm. And you have to know when it's better to completely change the translation, but keep the original meaning so that the voice comes through versus when you should be telling the audience this is the exact word that they used, only translated, so you could translate it back if you want to. This is uh, making me think of last year when there was a lot of debate about Squid Game and the uh-huh. dub for Squid yeah. Game, It was, which was yep. interesting for me to observe because I had a lot of actor friends who were the voice actors Mm. for the English dub. Mm-hmm. Like I know mm-hmm. a lot of the Korean actors, in a, you mm-hmm. know, Americans who were do, voicing the English dub and some mm-hmm. people were really critical of the, yeah. basically the writing about like the meaning changing in certain lines mm-hmm. because of whoever did the translation at Netflix. Now that's nothing to do with the actors. They're just reading the translation, but. But it, it does have to do with them too because right. they have to get the original meaning across even if the words contradict them. And they have to deal with getting a lot of internet flack when people yep. don't like the dub and and that's, you know, the actual mm-hmm. script isn't something they were in control of. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, that's exactly the kind of thing I did. Wow. That, okay. Well, that's a whole other episode now that I want to do. <laughs> um, that is very exciting. I can't believe I didn't know you did that. That is so it cool. Was, it was in the 20th century. so you you wouldn't have been around to ask me about it well I'm glad I know now so that I can (laughs) ask you in this in this century (laughs) um uh yeah so I mean the 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 question just starting the feedback process with questions is clearly it's so important Mm -hmm. it's so important to know like what your role is as the editor or what the or as the friend. And I'm sure it also just differs based on medium and right what the project is for, if it's paid, who it's going out to next, all of that. Mm-hmm. But um, I myself, at least when reading friends screenplays, I have a kind of a system for mm-hmm. how I send feedback. 
and I, I'm wondering if, if you do, do you have a system for sending feedback? Do you have rules or boundaries you keep in mind when sending feedback and others writing? How do you usually break it down? I have so many. And, you know, and it differs according to each case. Yeah. So maybe you could tell me a couple of yours and then. Sure. So if like a, if a friend sends me a draft of something, usually like a, a second or third draft at that point, something that's close and they're, they're asking for notes, I send my feedback in the form of questions. Mm-hmm. Because I think that that is, for, for me, when I receive feedback that way, that's really helpful and affirming. It's not saying change this part. It's someone engaging with my work in detail and and pointing out the areas that can be expanded. So that's usually how I do it with friends is I, I say, you know, I, I love this part, but I want to learn more about this character's past. Why Why did they mention this thing. I'm trying to think of a better example, but mm-hmm. why is this person's job this way? Like I basically break down anything that needs to be gone into further in, in the form of a question so that they have the opportunity to at least, you know, even if it doesn't make it into the script, like mm-hmm. flesh out the character more mm-hmm. then put that in, like the shades of that, the colors of that in the next draft. I start with a couple of sentences of what I liked about it. And then I mm-hmm. just send a long list of questions about specific moments, characters, you know, maybe character history that I would like expanded all so that they can think about that and as they go through the next draft and just like deepen the, the character work for the mm-hmm. most part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's nice. So you're seeing underneath the surface of everything yeah I think especially as an actor it's like yeah. you, like that's what I can contribute mm-hmm. you know like with, with whether you're sending me a horror script or a comedy that's like what I can be helpful with mm-hmm. is like the mm-hmm. psychology of characters and their motivations mm-hmm. and like a little getting a little bit more history on each of them even again even if it doesn't make it into the final draft mm-hmm. just that it's important that the writer really knows the characters well enough yeah. To, to make them come across as authentic. Okay. Huh. So I'm realizing I do have the standard approach that I have for everybody mm-hmm. is a first read. And I live blog it. I mean, it's email or text or whatever, but it's like live blogging. It's not that they get it all at once with all of my comments along the way. It's more like I will send them in real time. Mm-hmm. So if it's fiction, you know, then I'll say, oh, but I don't know where you're going with this, but I'm really intrigued. And then, you know, two minutes later, I'll say, wow, this is really suspenseful. And then, you know, a minute later, oh, I can't believe you did that cliffhanger to me. I hate you. (laughs) um, You know, to which the author will then write back, you know, he he or something. Mm hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, I'll say, okay, I don't know if this is where you're going with this, but this plus that plus this plus that makes me wonder and hope if in chapter five, we're going to see this. And, you know, and then if there's like a little inside joke, that's like a little Easter egg for the reader to pick up. That's, you know, I'll notice that I'm like, oh, this was really clever. And then there'll be times where I'll say, okay, what did you try, what did you want to get across with this character moment? If you meant that the reader should think this about the character, 
then you didn't write it enough. Mm-hmm. You should go back and make that clearer. But if you meant this other thing, and I'm getting completely the wrong impression, then these are the four words that made me think that. So you right. should go back and change them because this is where it led me to think you were going. If you want to leave it up to the reader, then these words are too definite. You should make them more ambiguous. Or is there somewhere else you were going with this, with this that I didn't catch? Usually when I do something like that, authors will say this was super useful. Most of the things that I throw out there as possibilities that came to me as a reader were not even relevant to what they were doing, but it gives them a sense of where they're coming across very strongly and where they have to go back and clarify what they're trying to do. Like, you know, if they're trying to do that thing where you put in a little hint here and a little hint there so that it's going to pay off later, I try to tell them, you know, how well that's working and how fast that's happening. I also, what's super, super important is that no matter how successful an artist is, they always want to hear what part of their art worked well. In a 400-page novel, if you say at the end, okay, that was really good, that's not going to feed the artist as much as saying chapter three, paragraph one, this turn of phrase was amazing and made me think of the whole novel differently. Yeah. You know, and you, I thought you were going to say this word, but you said that word. And then suddenly I understood everything. Um, and that's really good. And even if somebody is, you know, has been doing this for decades and is a prize winning author, if you assume that they've already heard all the praise and they don't need it from you, then what you unintentionally do is create a document of nothing but criticisms. And that feels like crap. (laughs) What a wonderful point. Oh my gosh. So when you look at balance, when you as an editor are creating a document of feedback, you want to balance it. Suppose you thought it was 99% gorgeous and then like oh there's this one percent that I you have a personal problem and you have to deal with it or this story is not going to work then Mm -hmm. your feedback should reflect how what percentage of it was wonderful and worth saving and worth the effort and you know if it comes back like oh this was really good but like 60 percent of your commentary is about the problem area that's gonna end up not conveying the correct message to the author. Do you have an experience that you can share about when someone suggested edits for your writing <laughs> in a way that felt good? Like as a writer, <laughs> are you laughing because you don't? Because you do. Oh no. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, oh my God. The worst, the worst. Oh, oh, oh. Yes, I do. I do have a story of a time that was I have a few stories that were great, actually. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) Because mostly it's, there's an image I have of myself when I'm getting feedback on my writing that's like, you know, like automatic nail guns, except like what if they're broken and they just keep shooting nails and you can't turn them off? Like I'm so defensive. Oh my Mm. God. I I I don't know how anyone can handle feedback on their writing. Oh my God, it's awful. Yes, this is in fact what I do. One time, oh, this was a long time ago, um, I started to understand that writing rules are different by genre. I didn't know that. 
you know, so for example, people say show, don't tell. Mm -hmm. That is totally wrong for, say, critical nonfiction. Right. You know, so I have friends who trained as novelists who then went to grad school in some other subject and didn't understand why this terrible way of telling and not showing was getting good grades. Yeah. Yeah. I remember being, it was like my first class in grad school. And the professor said, why did you not put this important piece of information up front? And I thought, oh, because you're supposed to build to it. You know, you're supposed to put all the evidence. And then when you have gathered all your evidence, then you're supposed to lead the reader to the inevitable conclusion and win the argument. And she said, no, front load it. Mm. And I was no one had ever explained that to me before. That was That's like starting a novel with the ending and then the rest of it's just blah, blah, blah. Like, what? <laughs> I totally didn't. That, no one had taught me that. And that changed so much of the way I thought. And I had also been taught how to edit newspaper articles in the inverted triangle, inverted pyramid scheme. You just order paragraphs in order of importance. So, you know, suppose someone had in a previous life been a librarian, like, does that affect the article? Well, it's good information, but suppose they have to cut it for length. You know, if people chop off from the bottom, then the whole rest of the article should still make sense. Mm. So, yeah, I thought, wow, that is completely different from the academic writing. When I got told things like that, and then they explained why, and they explained how the order I had things in wouldn't work for this purpose, but if you changed it to this other order, then that would convey what my readers would be looking for. I, I guess I love when people make explicit the unspoken rules because they're real, but not everyone knows them in the first place. And not, not everyone can articulate them, but when you can identify them and explain them clearly, um, it makes a lot of things easier. Yeah. So that I remember. And then there's one specific time that was like the clouds parting and the angels singing. This was somebody for whom I had baited a million words of fan fiction, literally a million words. We kept Oh my God. <laughs> she was my favorite fan fiction writer said to me, I couldn't believe I had the privilege, but of course, from her point of view, she couldn't believe that I was doing all this labor. So we both thought we were lucky, which is the great, Mm -hmm. you know, a great position to be in. So, but then one time I had to write an essay for an anthology and it was due the next day. And it, I was writing up to the last second and I was so stressed and it was literal. my draft was literally double the word count that it needed to be. So this friend said, give it to me, you go to bed. Okay. <laughs> and oh, so I guess she felt like after all that I had done for her, she could do this for me. And so I went to bed and I woke up and she had magically cut it in half. So it was exactly the right word length by going through all of the stuff I had written, picking out the most relevant things that would relate off of each other to make a coherent article. So some of the things she cut out were just excess words. 
Some were good points, but they didn't play well with the others. Mm. Some were just weak and I didn't need them. Whatever it was, she, it was, I don't remember exactly, but it was something like going from 8,000 to 4,000 words. It was a big cut. That's a good friend. Oh my (laughs) God. And, you know, I say, you know, I had to remind myself, oh yeah, I guess, you know, betaing a million words of fanfic over several years. I don't have to, I can just say, thank you for this gift. And I didn't have to do a damn thing. And it was all my own work. And she just took what was most successful about it, which at that point I couldn't tell. Right. It's, I'm, I'm saying that's such a good friend. And yet you definitely earned it over a million words of data reading <laughs> their fan fiction. Wow. What a relief that is. What a gift, though. And to have it, was it all done in one night? Yeah. I mean, it was actually done in four hours because I was so, I was pushing the deadline so desperately that I actually only got four hours of sleep. But during those four hours, she did that for me. So you're, you're currently writing revisions or you're working on revisions for a new edition of your book. Mm-hmm. which is called uh, Snape, The Definitive Analysis. Mm-hmm. I will definitely link in the show notes, but the new edition comes out this fall, right? Mm-hmm. In this edition, you hired sensitivity readers for a segment yeah. that explores some transgender themes in Harry Potter. And for people who don't know, can you, I mean, can you tell us what a sensitivity reader is? So it's someone who has experience with what is usually a minority perspective and can help a writer just by sharing their lived experience, sharing how they perceive something. No one can write equally accurately about all kinds of people. But if you want to center or not dishonor somebody, uh, you can say, could you please read this and tell me if I'm unintentionally being offensive, if I'm being ignorant, if there are things I should be saying. Um, How does this come across to you and why? So unlike when minority people have to do unpaid labor of explaining and educating, a sensitivity reader is somebody who is both taking one for the team and getting paid. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, having the labor be acknowledged. So, you know, because just like every other skill, some people enjoy it, some people are good at it, some people maybe don't enjoy it, but it's, you know, such a valuable thing to contribute that they would that they like doing it Um, or, you know, can do it here and there when they have the energy. Was this your first time hiring a sensitivity reader or several? I think, I think so. Yeah. I mean, instead of just having friends tell me, I think this is the first time I went out looking for people who did it, you know, who had their fees and their policies up on their websites. Yes. And and how did feedback from sensitivity readers change your editing process? Because I set out on purpose, hoping to center what I heard from them. I what I did, I hired one sensitivity reader who is professional, and you know this is what they do. And mm-hmm. I also hired ten community people, you know, friends of friends, that responded to my call with like a set fee for mm-hmm. like an hour or less worth of work because 
obviously with sensitivity reading, it's so based on your personal experience that if you ask somebody completely different, who knows what overlap there will be. So getting a lot of different voices is obviously going to show the common areas. Mm -hmm. So yeah, part of it showed me where it would be okay to go with my reading, even though it wasn't resonating with some people just because that's the nature of writing. Yeah. And part of it showed me, oh, this one thread that I thought would be important to people is like even more important than I thought Mm. and has to be completely unambiguous. And oh, okay, the best thing I think I got out of it was support for my confidence in telling editors yes I know this is a very minority viewpoint I'm absolutely certain that I want to center it and I know that most people reading this won't identify with this viewpoint Mm -hmm. but it's important and it's on purpose and I'm going to do that I want to make it so that the one in a hundred readers who feels really affected by this feels like, okay, this is good. This is what I was looking for. And the other 99, you know, could be saying, this is not at all what I was expecting. What? (laughs) You know, I just, I needed backup and I certainly didn't have it from my personal experience. I had suspicions. I had things that I think I wanted to say. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, talking to people, how, how do you receive this? How do you perceive it? that made it a much more rounded idea. So it's an area where I don't have personal authority, but I do have things that I want to get across. And it helped me, yeah, I mean, just the relief of knowing that at least for these sensitivity readers, I wasn't offending them. That's that's a big relief off my mind. Yeah, that's a huge relief, especially, yeah. I mean, the example that we're talking about is just such a difficult and emotionally loaded conversation right now Mm, it's and it's it's in the community you are writing for specifically and I I mean I don't know if you if you talked about it with the new publisher I don't know what the Mm -hmm. conversation was with them but it's like it it is so important to talk about but it's scary (laughs) like of course you know like getting a bunch of people on board who can who can uh, ease your anxiety and and help you through it. I mean, that's hugely important. The feedback from the publishers was very much one of those deals where they said that they've got my draft and they said I either had to do it a lot more or take it out. Mm -hmm. But I knew what I wanted to say and I wasn't that authoritative in knowing how to say it. Mm. So the end result was not convincing. And that's when I realized, oh, hey, sensitivity readers exist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is exactly, this is a great time to ask somebody who is willing to educate me to please do so. I love that sensitivity readers exist. I just think it's such an, it's like such an incredible resource for writers, especially if people are grumbly about the the time we're in. Mm -hmm. I see all the time, like, people, writers grumbling about maybe getting feedback that they shouldn't write from a certain character's perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Because they don't know that experience or like this character seemed tokenized. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. you can just go further in, like you can do that work. You can write that character 
but you absolutely can also hire sensitivity readers to help you through the process and that will save you a lot of pain. It'll make your writing better. I've been hired as a sensitivity yeah. reader for for a website. Mm-hmm. And that was mm-hmm. so cool. And I, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I really took my time with it and I was so thorough and it felt so good mm-hmm. to, to, to be, you know, paid for that work, but it felt so good to also just help someone's website attract the right clients in the right yeah. way. Like it, it was amazing. It was an amazing experience for me as mm-hmm. well. I actually, I did work as a sensitivity reader. This experience was it was the one that made me understand just how much beta reading can be better for authors than traditional novel editing. Mm. Uh, because I kind of couldn't believe this friend asked me. Uh, the novel, it was published posthumously. It's called Tree of Cats, and it's by Ellis Avery, who went to school with me and died a few years ago. And she was an incredible writer who's books won awards for literary fiction and she taught creative writing at Columbia and you know at one point I get this email from her saying could you do a sensitivity read for my YA novel which was written from the point of view of a black young teen girl Mm. and Ellis was white and that was one of the issues was like am I being arrogant to think that I can write this at all should I not be doing it am I doing more harm than good by writing this you know, could you look into it and tell me what you think? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I thought, I don't know what I have to offer. I mean, my respect for her writing was and is enormous, but okay, I'll just, I guess I'll just do what I do. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, you can take it or leave it. So I did the live blogging kind of response that I do with my fan fiction authors, and Ellis went nuts with joy. No one had ever done that for her where, you know, I was saying, oh, is this going to happen? And and then like when there was a moment of payoff, you know, I would write in all caps. I can't believe that. I didn't see that coming at all. And it just made her so happy. And it was real time and engaging with the words more like how a writer experiences them, you know, instead of just like all at once in a sealed off set time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it turned out that I was, my feedback was worth more than I was afraid. And, uh, yeah, the sensitivity read aspect of it really was, you know, it's not a question of how dare you appropriate a different kind of voice. You should never even dare to do it. No, that's, in my opinion, going in the wrong direction, that's more afraid. And, you know, less toward understanding and having empathy it's more like books are written word by word if you get an impression of tentative race uncertainty or Mm -hmm. ignorance those impressions are created word by word you can address them word by word you can say this word shows that you were nervous try using these words instead why don't you cut out this line entirely? And here, instead of saying this, why don't you focus on what that person was feeling or what it reminded them of, you know, word by word. And this is a different and much more micro level of handholding than the same author will need for areas in which they're confident. 
that's fine. That's what a sensitivity reader does and also gives implicit permission for that person to be ignorant or offensive and mess up, which you have to do in, on your way to being a good writer. Yeah. And the other thing that I learned from that experience was, wow, she paid me what felt to me like a fortune. I've been doing this for free. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, for, for the beta writing. Right, you know. right. I love that. And it felt so good for her to to receive it in that style, too. So mm-hmm. it's just a, it, it's a win-win all around. You're, like, introducing her as well to this much more, yeah. it sounds like, just much more enjoyable process of receiving feedback while Which, also being paid well for something you have been yeah, doing millions some- of words of for free. <laughs> I mean, I, I had done I had done paid editing before, but during the interim when I did all the free beta reading, I realized editing like she told me her budget, and I knew it was going to take me longer than that. So I told her, well, um, I'm just not going to charge you for my first read, and I'm just going to take my time as much as I want, and then I'll charge you for when I start writing comments. And then I realized, okay, this is the fan fiction economy, or anything yeah. you do for love. You don't have to compromise on quality because of the budget. Mm. Like there are times when, yeah, sure, it would be lovely to rewrite that four times, but come on, you know, clients waiting, deadlines happening, can't pay you for that anyway. Um, And fan fiction or any fandom or love project is like, no, you get to geek out until you're happy. Yeah. It's for joy only. And so you can, and I have, put much higher quality of work into it. Wow. What a great point. It's, it kind of hurts to say, doesn't it? <laughs> well, it does, but it's, it's also why every long-term collaborator I have is someone I met through fandom. Yeah. Any long-term yeah. project. You can just do it until it feels good. Exactly. And I, it's funny because I didn't—I've never thought about it that way. But yeah, that's like the unspoken understanding, and the, and the just we're coming from that same experience as artists. We're coming from that same experience of doing great work for the love of it mm-hmm. as a fan, mm-hmm. and so we're willing to put that time in then as artists. And you don't have to feel bad if you're slow. Mm-hmm. And this is also this. I saw this change happening in the fan creator community. Like a couple decades ago, it was very shameful. Considering it, it was considered very shameful and embarrassing to do fan writing, that it wasn't paid. It's not real. You know, if you were a real writer, you'd be getting contracts and getting paid. You can't see my eye roll, but it's there. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's real. And right. You know, and it as it turns out, the exact same people write pro and fan. Yes. <laughs> it's the exact um and there came some pushback when fan creators, tired of being shamed, started timidly saying, you know what? Not only should I not be shamed, but actually the fan stuff I read is better than the pro published stuff. And you know, I thought, is that all sour grapes? It is not all sour grapes. Yeah, it's not. Because the pro-published stuff has a deadline. Whether you're done or not, you turn it in. So true. Well, and now we have examples of, of 
you know, Oscar winning directors and, yeah. Uh, yeah, and you know, generation. huge artists and like, like openly saying, Oh, I wrote fan fiction. I write fan, yeah. you know, uh, it, which is really exciting because the culture yeah. around it has changed so much. And that, yeah, it was, it's been fun watching the reality of that seep into people. So do you have a special process or like routine for editing your own work or do you have like rewards you give yourself upon completion? <laughs> I have a process for when it's not working. Oh. Which is if you just go through it several times, in the end, it'll be better than it was. And if you're not feeling it, if the magic isn't happening, but you know, you signed up for this, then just go through it more times. <laughs> so like at a time when my brain is really just blah, you know, I'll say, okay, I'm going to edit this thing eight times beginning to end. And by the time it's done, it'll be great. It'll be good enough. Done. Right. Finished. You know, maybe not my greatest or most inspired work, but nothing to be ashamed of. And, you know, if it's happening properly and I'm inspired, it might be like two or three times. And when I learned that that trick actually works where you don't have to catch everything on every edit, editing mm. pass, but if you just make yourself do it, no matter how much in rote manner, you will catch something. It's always nice to hear stories as well of where an author or writer of any kind not admits, but I guess shares how many times the the thing was rewritten. Mm -hmm. One of my all-time favorite movies is this movie Mid-90s that was written and directed by Jonah Hill, who was known for being an actor. Mm -hmm. You know, this was mm -hmm. his first, this was his directorial debut. Mm -hmm. And um, and he, I, I, when I saw the movie, I, I saw it at a screening that he was at where he did a, a like talk back Q&A after. And he said, Oh, I've been writing this movie for ten years. Mm -hmm. You know, this ha this has mm -hmm. been through more more rewrites, more drafts than you can even imagine. It was ten mm -hmm. years that I wrote this, mm -hmm. and I was like, "Oh, I love this so much." Mm -hmm. And you took your damn time with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's reassuring. It's exactly reassuring. That's that's what I'd call it too. Well, Lori, there's so much more we can talk about, uh, even editing podcasts and editing film. Like there's there's just so many perspectives we can come to with this. But in, in the interest of, of keeping on a schedule <laughs> of editing this down, um, I'll close out the conversation for now and uh, and just ask you, it's been well, it's been so good having you here. I've learned so much, by the way. I'm writing I've been writing notes down because I'm learning so much um, but until next time I'll have you back I'll just ask you uh, what is the art life the art life is the reason why we exist at all it's the thing we get to do yes Grace what is the art life the art life is going in the direction of empathy mm. I loved when you said that, and mm. I'm going to be thinking about that one a lot. So I will link to your Twitter and your book, and uh, is there anywhere else you would like me to link? Where can people support your art? Oh, I just had 
this brilliant web designer redo my website. So Yay. it's lauriekim.com. And she made it look so good. I'm so pleased. And she's a brilliant novelist herself. It was, I felt so, I felt cool working with her. Oh, Mira that's so T. Lee. exciting. Yeah. I, so, will, yeah. I can't wait to check it out. I'll, I'll be looking at your new website today. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Oh, well, this makes me like this cures my missing you. It's nice to talk to you. Well, it doesn't cure mine because I miss you even more now, but okay. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad that you're feeling better. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm, this was such a good conversation. I've, you know, I've written so many things down myself. I feel like I just learned so much and I'm so excited to have you back to talk about your new book edition of your book when it comes out, maybe even an episode on the art of translation. But Ooh. until then, yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. I can't wait to hear what people think. I know so many of our listeners also come from fandom and I mm-hmm. think they'll be really excited to hear about just your perspective on fan fiction and all of it really. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And yeah, it's just great to talk to you. You too. It was just the best. So until next time from my side of the world, uh, good afternoon. (laughs) Yes. And from my side of the world, Oh, it's time for afternoon tea. I like it. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Bye. This is The Art Life. You can read more and subscribe to our newsletter at www.theartlife.show or send letters to The Art Life, Care of Grace Gordon, P.O. Box number 1193, Hollywood, California, 90078. You can email us at theartlifeshow at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at The Art Life Show. Our theme music is The Stream by Rory. Thank you for being part of The Art Life.